my name is Craig. So good to be with you this morning. One of the things I really like to do is I like to find connections from things that seem disconnected. So what does Taco Bell have in common with the great farms race of 1977? And then you find a connection. It's like, wow, amazing. I don't know. That was just a random example. And some of you are like, what is it? I don't know. What does a climate change denying pastor, hello, have in common with a dad who thinks God cares about him like he cares about his kids' problems, have in common with the phrase, you're too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. Whew. I think it has everything to do with our passage this morning, the, the, the common thread running among those three groups of folks, the climate change-denying pastor, the father who thinks God is interested in him like he's interested in his kids' toys, and then the phrase, you're far too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. All of these things, I think, come out of this idea that started right real close to the completion of the New Testament, a mistaken belief that we all swim in those waves. And it's this separation of the spiritual from the physical. If we separate the spiritual from the physical, we end up getting involved in this race that's like, well, God cares about this stuff, but not this stuff. So I heard a pastor once, and we're not going to talk about things, we're not going to talk, and I'm like, jump, I'm pogo sticking on a landmine here, but just hang on, hang with me for a second. I once heard a pastor, a well-known and well-respected pastor, make this phrase, well, the whole earth is going to burn, so you might as well spray aerosol spray cans, walk on the grass, who cares? That's an option. I meet with a, a guy regularly. We're friends. I really like him. But he keeps saying this thing to me. And I, I one time just asked him what it meant. He's like, well, God doesn't really care about my needs. I'm like, well, what, what, tell, tell me what that means. Like, you keep saying that. What does that mean? He said, well, like my kids... You know, I, I, I care about my kids. I'm like, okay, where is this going? But, you know, my kids care about their toys, and like if their toy breaks, they get really disturbed and spun out, and it's the end of the world, or if we don't have a certain flavor of ice cream, they just get spun out. So I don't really care about that, but I kind of pretend I care, like, oh, yeah, mint chocolate chip, that's so hard. <laughs> I just kind of pretend I care, and that's like God with us. He doesn't really care about our world. He's God. There's a lot he's got going on his plate. But when I'm like, oh, I don't have a job. Oh, I have cancer. He's like, oh, it must be hard. And I was just like, that too is an option. And then there was this phrase that's been going around. I don't know if you've heard it. It's a phrase that goes, you know, you're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. That's a phrase. I'm not fully sure what it means. But it, it kind of is like the equivalent of people who have their head in the clouds, 
but they're like spiritual clouds, right? They're just thinking about Jesus and the Bible, and you're like, hey, there's people around you. Do you care about us? And like, well, I'm just so dedicated to the Lord. I didn't even know you were there. And I think that's what that's trying to describe. All three of those things have a common thread that goes all through them, and it's very serious. And it's connected to this idea that comes from Plato, and it's this early idea called Gnosticism. I had the privilege in um, my seminary days, I got to translate a lot of the letters that were written right after the New Testament was completed. So there were a bunch of pastors who wrote letters in Greek. I got to translate a bunch of those. Uh, and you learn a lot about what the early church believed. And right after the New Testament is completed, you can see this belief of separating the physical and the spiritual. You can see it r right on in these letters. And you may believe like this too. We, we got to address this because if, if we think like this and then we go to our text, we may be investing in the problem, not the solution. And we got to deal with with. With this filter, we receive the text. Here's how this belief can sometimes go. You, are a, you have a body, and your body is like a case for this thing called your soul. The soul is the real you. The body, nah, that stuff like is important-ish. It doesn't really matter. The real you is that blob right there, your soul. And that exists and has existed for forever. And your life is just when that soul goes into that casing called your body. And you live, and then one day, your soul leaves that casing called its body, and you just go be a spiritual thing for forever. Does this sound like a Disney movie that you recently... It was excellent. I'm not trying to knock it. It's soul. It's the movie Soul. It's like kind of permeated with this idea. This is not biblical. And the danger, if we, if we think this idea is biblical, I have a soul, I am a soul, this soul is just in a body, and God, yeah, gave me a body, not really sure why, but he gave me a body, what's going to happen is you're going to separate your physical needs from your spiritual needs, and you're going to look to God to meet your spiritual needs, and you're going to look to someone else to meet your physical needs. That's not God's realm. God does the spiritual stuff. So we bring the spiritual stuff to God. Likewise, the reason people don't get, the reason they don't get the truth of the Bible is because they're not spiritual like me. What does it mean to be spiritual? Well, it kind of means the Bible just agrees with me. But we, we then morph that the gospel is good news for spiritual people. You know, the gospel is good news for people, people. And it's not an accident, and it's not a mistake that we are embodied creatures. That is by design. And when Jesus enters our story, he enters the story with a body. We call it the incarnation, like chili con carne, chili with meat. Jesus took on flesh, and that's central to his identity. He's not indifferent to the physical world. He's deeply involved in the physical world. And he cares about meeting all our needs. And the danger is if we think, oh, God cares about my, my, my spiritual life, we're going to look to others to meet our physical needs, our emotional needs. And here's the problem. 
They can't. That's an awful weight to put on, uh, let's just say, a romantic partner. You are the one who God has put in my life to meet all of my emotional and physical needs. That's a huge weight. God is not concerned about a small area of our life called our spiritual lives. He's concerned about our lives. In John chapter 6, he offers us something called the shared life, where he enters the story and says, what gives me life, I'm offering to you to give you life too. We'll share life together. We'll have the same life source, our relationship with the triune God. You can join into that. Likewise, as positive as it is, also, well, what, what grieves God and what, what, what makes God suffer, what now grieves us and makes us suffer, call that sin. And, and so we, we experience this, this invitation in John chapter 6 of a shared life. And here's how it looks. Jesus is approached by a crowd, and he sees their physical needs. They're hungry, so he feeds them. They then go, this is pretty great. If this guy can feed us, he'd be a great king, so then we can take on Rome, we overthrow Rome, and then we're free and all our problems are solved. Jesus says, mm, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to meet deeper needs than just these short-sighted ones. We're not talking about, I'm, I'm here to take you away and take you off to this faraway place, but I'm, I'm not here to play that short game. I'm here to meet deeper needs. And so he disappears. They find him. He, he walks across water. He breaks the laws of heaven and earth. He walks across water. These people find him. And they're like, okay, how'd you get here? Don't worry about it. We want more bread. Like, you gave us bread. We want more bread. And Jesus makes a statement, which again, if we don't change the filter, we're going to re receive wrong. He says, don't work for bread that perishes. Work for eternity. They're like, well, how do we do that? He says, trust me. And they're like, nah, we don't want to do that. He's saying, let me meet your needs. Let's experience this shared life. And John chapter 6 takes us to a fork in the road about needs. See, our danger, just like the crowds approached Jesus with different expectations of how he's going to meet their needs, we approach Jesus with expectations about how he's going to meet our needs. And Jesus performs these two miracles to say, I care about all of you, you as a whole person, and I want to meet your needs in a true and deep way. But I'm not going to meet your needs on your terms. I'm going to meet your needs on my terms. Can you trust that that's good? That is a difficult place that everyone who follows Jesus has to come to. Will we trust Jesus to meet our needs in a way that is unlike anything we would have done? Or will we say, no, I, this is too much. I got to meet my needs. I, I, I don't think you know how to take care of me. We're going to look at John chapter 6 and see how do we get to a place where we really can see he is for us, he's on our side, he's coming after us, he's relentless, and he knows how to meet our needs. So if you have a Bible... We're going to be in John chapter 6, starting in verse 16. 
John chapter 6, verse 16, and we're going to read all the way to verse 40. What does it mean for Jesus to meet our needs? What's this shared life he's offering us? We're already asking a lot of you today. I didn't realize we scheduled a congregational meeting when the, the chiefs are playing the Jets. My house will be on the edge of their seats. And so I, we're already asking a lot of you, but I'm going to ask just a little more of you today. Would you please stand with me as we read God's word? I love you too much to just let you fall asleep. I have a very ASMR voice, and I can just lull you to sleep. So we're going to just rise up while we read these many verses. We doing good? All right. Here we go. John 6, 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that he had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got in the boats and went to Capernaum in search for Jesus. Now, when they had found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Listen to how he answers them. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of God, the Son of Man, excuse me, will give to you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Well, then they asked, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, uh, What sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe in you? What are you going to do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, as is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given to me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and will raise them up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. 
Father, I pray that you would keep us aware that we have filters. God, it's so easy for us to separate our spiritual needs and our physical needs. And then we look at our physical life and we see needs that need to be met and we, we act like we're alone. Father, I pray that we would recognize you are near, you move toward us, you intervene to rescue, and that we would look for your rescuing every day. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. It is really crucial that we start to join back together what man has ripped asunder, our physical life and our spiritual life. Because if we don't, we run the risk of making investments in things that make the problem worse. Let me just give you an example of what this can look like in our physical lives. Wellness is a massive industry in the United States. Wellness. You're laughing because your companies have all started investing in wellness. We really care about your wellness and your mental health and all these things. I think a couple weeks ago, Tim Cook of Apple said that Apple is a wellness company. It's like, it is? I thought they made phones. Like, what's going on there? So the, the number of dollars being poured into the wellness industry is just going up and up and up and up and up. Do you know what also is rising up and up and up and up and up and up? Sickness. It's estimated, and again, just always be cautious of pastors and statistics, but it's estimated that one in three of you in this room have chronic pain you deal with. It's also, if you read, like, the, there's loneliness is an epidemic that's on the rise. Like, people are isolated, we're sick, we're experiencing pain. All the while, we're continuously investing in this giant industry called wellness. And after a while, you go, well, systems are perfectly designed to get the results that they get. And that's what we got. And the question becomes, do we want to try something different? I'm not trying to say quit Apple or I'm not trying to, say, I'm not trying to give you any medical advice, all right? Like, oh, this is not what I do. But what I'm trying to say is when it comes to our spiritual lives, if we have separated our spiritual and our physical, there's a temptation to just pray away the pain and we don't see any change. And we think, you know what I need to do? and work harder. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just work harder at this. And Jesus comes and says like, hey, let's try something else. Let's try this thing called the shared life that he's offering. And not everybody gets it. One of the things that come, when we talked about the pastor who denies climate change, uh, and again, I'm not trying to like, I just want to say, I know that's a landmine. That belief though that the world is going to burn, who cares? comes out of Plato, that God made his creation and he's going to rescue people from his creation, boom, send it away, and then we live in a faraway, wonderful place called heaven, and that's fantastic. And that's where these ideas come from of like, ah, who cares how we treat the earth? It doesn't matter. And again, just because I know it's a, we're pogo sticking through a minefield, if you talk to people from Generation Z and lower, when they think about the climate, do you know what feeling they associate with the climate? hopelessness. They see, they see a world where they have no future, where the earth has been robbed of its resources, older generations have done it. They feel hopeless and stuck. That is the other side of this road that we can get on, where we can be so focused on just like the immediacy, we, we miss sight of God. Both 
edges need correction. Both edges, it doesn't matter, and I'm hopeless. Both of those need correction that Jesus is about to give. How does he give correction? Well, here's what he's saying. He's saying the shared life meets both your physical and your spiritual needs. Now, think about this with me for a second. John is written Jesus' biography as a book. Books have readers. You're welcome. John knows that his readers know something the crowds in his biography don't. The readers know that Jesus just walked on water to rescue his disciples. We know that. John knows we know that. So as we're reading this, we're like, oh yeah, Jesus walked on water. He saved his disciples. Great. The crowds don't know that. How do we know they don't know that? Look back with me at like verses, uh, I think it's like 25. Here's what we get. Here's what the crowds, uh, 23. No, 22. We'll get there. The next day, the crowds had stayed on the opposite shore. They realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples. So here's what happens. They know Jesus feeds the crowds. He leaves. He's like, ah, we want to make you king. Where'd you go? They know he left. They know his disciples also took a boat. They look at the boat station. There's only one boat missing. That strikes their attention. Huh, that's really odd. And so they finally, they, they get a bunch of folks together. They head across the water. They find Jesus. And when they find him, they're like, hey, Rabbi, verse 25, when did you get here? What's going on there? Here's what I believe is happening. From their perspective, they just met a guy who can take limited resources and make them abundant. He took five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 people. Now, can this guy teleport? Like, this guy's pretty great. So they're like, oh, we definitely got to make this guy king. Look what he can do. How did you get here? Notice what he doesn't do, though. He doesn't even answer the question. I tell you, you're looking for me, verse 26, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. This is one of the toughest lessons I've had to learn in my spiritual life. God, who meets our needs, who moves toward us, does not have to meet my needs the same way he meets my neighbor's needs. God may want my neighbor to learn how to trust him while their bank account is overflowing. You have to trust me through abundance. And God may want me to learn to trust him when my bank account is negative. I have to trust him with not much. And I like to say, God, can I, can I please learn my neighbor's lesson? I really would love that. Can I just, can, can I, but no. The shared life does not mean all pain goes away. We are dealing with a teacher who knows us and knows the lessons we need to learn. And we find ourselves in the classroom. And that teacher is not abandoning us, but is with us. And what's that teacher doing with us? I think the same thing Jesus did with his disciples through rescuing them on the boat, he is offering to the crowds. The same thing he gave his disciples he is offering to the crowds. What did he give his disciples? The biblical word for what Jesus did when he rescued his disciples on the boat, in the waves, and the chaos is salvation. Salvation. Again, we think salvation is this thing that happens to us after we die. It's this very far off thing. 
That is not a biblical concept of salvation. In the Bible, salvation is when God does for me what I could never do for myself. Salvation is not, oh, I, I, so I'm going to die. I don't know where I'm going to go. So I'm going to trust Jesus. Boom, I'm saved. Yeah, that is salvation. But that's, that's a very narrow definition of how the Bible talks about salvation. Salvation is when God intervenes in our lives, rescues us from what would happen for our good. Let me give you some examples of this from Scripture. In Exodus 14, 13, Israel's in trouble. They've just been set free from Egypt. Pharaoh's like, changed my mind. The world's greatest military then chases after Israel. They're stuck. There's mountains to their side. There's the Red Sea behind them. They cannot fight, and these people are coming to kill them. Yahweh says to Moses, prepare to see God's salvation. What does that mean? You're all going to die, but don't worry. You're going to go to a place called heaven. No. God's going to intervene and do for you something you could never do on your own. Luke 8, 48. A woman comes to Jesus. She is physically sick. And Jesus says, today I will save you. You will experience my salvation. What does that mean? He did for her what she could never do. He intervened. In James 5.20, this is one of my favorites, the writer of James is describing uh, someone who's gone off and sowing their wild oats. They're a believer. They trust in Jesus, but they're living like it's the 80s. And he says, when that believer is brought back, they experience salvation. Spiritual renewal of someone who is spiritually dry is called salvation. And in Psalm 27.1, we get the real kicker. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. What is he? He's the one who intercedes for my behalf. Both the disciples on the boat experience salvation, but the crowds also are offered salvation. God offering to intervene on our behalf. What does it look like for the disciples? Well, look with me at verse 19. When they had rowed for about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. There are many folks who read this from an anti-supernatural bent, and just like in English, in Greek, prepositions can have two meanings. So when the John says that Jesus was walking on the water, it's true. It could say that Jesus was walking by the water. It could say that. That is fully possible. That makes no sense, though, in the context of this passage. These are nautical guys living in the ancient world. These guys are not nice. They are tough. And it says they are terrified. To these nautical warriors, there's nothing really terrifying about a guy taking a stroll on a beach at night. In the ancient world, in the ancient world, they believed that the sea was the realm of chaos. The gods lived in the sea, and storms stirred up the gods. And sometimes at night, they came up out of the water. And so these, these strong mariners are rowing for their lives, and they see what the other gospels, the synoptics, tell us they believe to be a ghost. They saw Jesus walking on the water. What's happening there? God sees people in need, and he moves toward them to meet their needs. He does for them what they never could do on their own. What's the result, though? Fear. They're terrified. How does Jesus respond? Verse 20, 
But Jesus said to them, literally, I am. In the Hebrew Bible, that's God's name. He shows up and says, God's here. Don't be afraid. Salvation is when God does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And it almost always includes facing our fears. Fear is a powerful motivator in our lives. Uh, Gabor Mate, he's a psychiatrist and a famous author. He was talking about palliative care in the United States. And if you interview a bunch of nurses who take care of people at the end of their life as people are dying, they say that one of, the, one of the regrets that people have, that people share with them, is that they never felt like they could truly be themselves. It's one of the top regrets people have at the end of their life. What's, that, what's happening there? Fear. Oh, if I'm really me, I'm going to get rejected. So I've got to be what everybody expects me to be. And near the end of your life, as you've got more road behind you than ahead of you, you're like, oh, I didn't get to, I wasn't even honest. We experience salvation when we can name our fears to the Lord. Too often, though, we're afraid to really be honest. And I think part of the reason is because we've separated the physical and the spiritual. What do I do if I tell God that I'm like so afraid to be angry because I think I might hurt somebody? What do I do if I tell God, like, I just, I just don't like the way my life is pouring out right now? What do I do? Do I just sit alone in my misery? Great. And then we hear Jesus saying things like this. Don't work for food that spoils, but food that endures to eternal life. And if we're thinking in the box that we've been given, oh yeah, I'm this like spirit, and I just got to invest in that spirit thing. Yeah, these things don't matter. That's not what Jesus is saying. Remember the context. What has Jesus just done? He fed 5,000 people. He met a physical need. He walked on water to rescue people. Also a physical need. Then, I think this is a miracle. It's kind of cool. It's not really given much attention. But look again at verse 21, how it ends. And immediately the boat, so after Jesus comes in, calms the water, the boat reached where they were headed. I think that's another miracle. Like, whoa, how did, okay. We see love, this shared life, meeting needs. Now crowds come to Jesus with a different set of needs. Hey, Jesus, meet these needs. And he's all of a sudden, the tune changes. No. Has he changed? No. He is meeting their needs. And that's a really hard lesson we have to learn. Sometimes unanswered prayers for good things come from a God who knows better than us. And that's so easy to spiritualize away. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still sick. I'm still suffering because God knows better than I do. But to truly face that, to truly face like my needs aren't being met the way I want them to and bring that to him, that's scary. That's terrifying. What, we run the risk of disappointment. What if we bring something to God? I'm like, God, would you do this? And he's like, no. No, I'm not going to do that. It's like, ah. But to really understand, though, what the crowds are asking Jesus, we start to see that he is willing to meet their need. It's just not the way they want him to. They're asking him to make bread. And the reason they're asking him for more bread seems really random to us. Like, why do you want more bread? That's like, 
okay, like maybe you're hungry again. That's not what's happening here. They have an expectation that Messiah will come and overthrow Rome. And according to 2 Baruch 28.9, what's that? Don't worry about it. But according to it's this writing, these writings from, the end of the, from like the, after the Old Testament, before the New Testament, the cultural expectation, one of the ways that the rabbis said that you would know that Messiah was there was that just like Moses brought manna, Messiah will bring manna too. Here's what they're saying to him. This, this says this. Uh, the, you know, it shall come to pass that the treasury of manna shall be descended from on high. So we're going to get manna again when the consummation of time comes. When the new Messiah comes, we'll get manna again. So they're coming to him and they're saying, hey, we want to make you king. And he's like, they understand what he's saying. He's like, I will be a king for you. They're like, okay, we'll really trust you if you can give us manna. Because that's what the rabbis say. And then Jesus really turns things on his head. He's like, well, you want me to give you manna like Moses did? Well, let's think about that for a second. John, uh, in verse 32, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but it was my father who gave you bread from heaven. So if God's going to open up the storehouses, Moses didn't do it, God gave you bread there. Okay, all right, we can, we can concede that. And then he says this though, verse 33, very important. The bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He said, I'm giving you manna, but it's a person. It's not. And actually, if they were faithful to the Old Testament, it actually says that in the book of Deuteronomy. That you should, yeah, when you lived in Deuteronomy 8, it says when you got manna in the wilderness, that wasn't what really was feeding your needs. It was the word of God. And now the word made flesh is standing in front of them saying, I'm, this is consistent with the Hebrew Bible. The word is here. I'm a person. I'm offering you this shared life. And they're brought to the fork in the road, and they understand it. Look at verse 27. He says this to them. I want to give you the, what, the food that endures to eternal life. Why? God the Father has placed his seal of approval on me. I have a shared life with the Father. He's giving me life. I can give you life. He's giving me a stamp of approval. I'm God's guy. You can trust me. And then look what they say in verse 28. What must we do to do the works God requires? What are they saying? How do we get God's stamp of approval? What's happening there? Help us meet our own needs. Help us meet our needs. And Jesus is saying, I, I don't do that. I don't help you meet your needs. I'll meet your needs. The thing you're seeking, you're seeking salvation. I'll provide for you salvation. It's going to go way above and beyond what you I'm doing things you don't even know about to meet needs. I walked on water to rescue these people. I, I just, I meet needs. Love meets needs. But to meet those needs would work you in the wrong direction. It's not going to create flourishing in your life. It's not how we do it. In 2007, I had to learn this lesson the hard way. 2007, I was about 20 years old, and I was engaged to be married. Not to Amy, to somebody else. And I had a whole life planned out. I, you know, I, I look back on my story and I'm like, what in, who were the adults in my life? Like, what, who let me do this? I was going to be a rock star and I was going to marry this girl and we were going to figure it out. And I had it all planned out. I was, I was kind of known for that, right? Like when you're 20 years old and you're engaged and you're going to be a rock star in Lake Winnipesaukee, New Hampshire, like it kind of makes a splash. 
A month before the wedding, I get the ring back. And in hindsight, it's like, oh, there were so many, yeah, signs that this was not flourishing for either of us. But I was so fixated on, like, I know what I want my life to look like. This is it. I got it. And then it didn't work out that way. And so here I sit at 20 years old, overwhelmed with shame. Now I'm this 20-year-old with a life experience none of my peers have. Like, oh, man. I felt like I was damaged goods. I felt crazy. I was like, ah. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but, like, when you are dating or in a serious relationship with someone and then it ends, people trying to help you, they say this thing, which I did not really experience this help. They're like, we knew it, man. She was crazy. It's like, oh, what? I was, well, it's like, so now add to the mix a component of like, everybody sees something I don't. And I felt this overwhelming shame. I know who I was. In that season, my prayer life centered around God. Remove this shame. I just don't want to feel the shame. And I had a way he could do it. Get the relationship back together. Right? Then it was just like, oh, bump in the road. We're good. Story still works out. I'm not crazy. And that was how I prayed for a long time. Like, oh, God, if this relationship could just get back together, we're good to go. And then a few months after the, the, the engagement had been called off, I ended up being around her for the first time. And no judgment on this. Like, I, I get to tell my story. Other people have their experience of the story. But from my experience of the story, I, I got a peek into a life I didn't want anymore. I started to be like, oh, yeah, like, oh, oh, I have some clarity as I've gotten, I don't want that anymore. And I came back and I started recognizing, oh, when God answered me with a no, it wasn't coming from a harsh, distant God who just cares about my spiritual life and is telling me to try harder. It came from a loving father who said, I see more than you do, just hang out. I got you, I got you. If we think that God is only interested in a small portion of our life, we're going to leave so much up for somebody else to meet those needs. And they just can't do it like he can. They can't. And that's why. That's why the psalmist says, He is my light and my salvation. Who should I be afraid of? All the people that can leave us, that can shipwreck our lives that doesn't have to hurt us because we're not looking to them to meet our needs the same way we're looking for Jesus to meet our needs the invitation of the shared life is not hey come connect with Jesus and then have all your needs met exactly how you'd like the invitation is meet a savior who will give you everything you're looking for Everything your heart desires, all those things are yes in Jesus. But it's not going to look a blessed thing like you thought it would. I got my shame taken care of. But I got taken care of by facing something I didn't want to face. We will experience all our needs met in Jesus. But do you trust him enough to say, and you can do that your way? 
Jesus invites us to do this when he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and all its righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus, we want these things added to us, but we don't know how to get there. God, give us the courage to face our fears knowing that you are with us. God, as we think about the shared life, what you're offering us, I pray that we would be people who seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and trust the details to you. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.